I noticed only yesterday that the conference brochure had the title Noah and Faith. Well, that wasn't the title I was given. Uh, the title I was given was The Faith of Noah. How is Noah an example of faith? So if you've come to hear about Noah and faith, which I think actually is syntactically different from the faith of Noah, <laughs> you missed out on Noah's boys and a little, and now you're going to have a double whammy. So the faith of Noah, how is Noah an example of faith, particularly as we find that faith explicated for us and highlighted to us in the reading that David just read. Hebrews 11 verse 7 is a condensed and perhaps even a cryptic exposition of the story of Noah, a story that covers four chapters, six through nine, and a few verses at the end of chapter five in the book of Genesis. But the Hebrews, the Hebrew believers to whom this letter was written, would have known the story of Noah inside out, upside down, backside foremost. So I'm assuming that we are no less familiar with the story of Noah as these Hebrew believers would have been. And I certainly found uh, the addresses I heard yesterday deeply stimulating and refreshing and makes me want to go back again and preach through those chapters in Genesis. If we are to make any biblical sense of Noah's faith, we need to understand that within the covenantal structure of biblical revelation and the covenantal flow of redemptive history. And although the word covenant first appears, as we all know, in Genesis 6:18, there is no doubt, at least in my personal judgment, that the concept of covenant first appears in God's relationship with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And now it matters little for our purpose this morning if we call that relationship the covenant of works, which I personally like, or the covenant of life, which I personally like, or the covenant of commencement, which I also like. Um, I think it's multifaceted. I think all of those elements are embedded in the heart of God's covenant, personal, unique, saving relationship with Adam. Now that unilaterally imposed, divinely imposed relationship with bilateral, embedded bilateral implications and consequences was broken by Adam and as we all know in great grace the Lord instituted in his mercy a remedial covenant, the covenant of redeeming grace which we find highlighted and explicated in Genesis 3:14 through 19. And of course it's this remedial covenant that comes to its fullest expression and ultimate consummation through a series of explicative but temporary historical administrations in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection and ascension of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. So as we begin to think about Noah and his faith, it's important, surely, to understand that no less than Adam, he is living in a covenant relationship with God. And we heard 
all about that uh, yesterday, and it's no need for me to repeat what we heard, although I'm tempted uh, to do so. The covenant with Noah that we read about in Genesis 6 through 9, which I understand to be one covenant, not even a bifurcated covenant, but one covenant, Palmer Robertson calls it the covenant of preservation, which is as good a title as any, I think, and is a further elaboration and explication of God's revealed resolve to relate to his creatures by way of covenant. And two features in particular should engage our thinking as we begin to reflect on the faith of Noah. Two very obvious features of God's covenant relationship with Noah. First of all, as highlighted in 6.18 and in 7.1, as in all of his covenants, none excluded, God deals with families. Faith is never conceived of purely as atomistic. It is individual, but never individualistic. And so in 6.18, the Lord says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous. In this covenant, God is dealing familiarly. That's an embedded feature in his covenant relationships. And the second thing we should note, and this may be picked up later if time permits, is the significance of the covenant sign. The, the rainbow that we read about in chapter 9, uh, 12 through 16, had both a present and an eschatological trajectory. And again, this was touched on yesterday, but it's important that we remember that when we read about the rainbow encircling the throne, and actually that's what the word is, it's not just round the throne, it's encircling the throne, that, that we see that symbolism, that imagery, in the light of its redemptive historical um, initiation with Noah and its ultimate consummation in great Noah's greater son, the ultimate Messiah, Redeemer, Jesus Christ. The terms and context of God's covenant with Noah embrace not only Noah and his family, but every living creature. Genesis 9, 8 following. The whole creation. And what is being signalling in chapter 9 is that God's grace is to embrace everything and everyone. Revealing his intention to bring ultimate renewal to everything and everyone in a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. The whole cosmos is to be renewed. The cosmos is God's initial good creation. Even in its fallenness, the matter is not inherently evil. And that's why we can benefit in a way that often we don't benefit, I think, in modern evangelical reformed seminaries by reading more of the early church fathers. 
I, this is something of a digression, but let me get it off my chest. I, I find it astonishing when I go to the USA and, and I talk to divinity students, theological students, and discover they've read almost nothing of the church fathers. Actually, they've read nothing of Carol Barth, and that just bewilders me to the extreme. Those so are how you can engage in theology without actually reading Barth, for example. But with the church fathers, they had wonderful perspectives on the continuity of what we would call God's successive covenant administrations. And they understood that God's ultimate purpose was a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And so you have, for example, in, in Irenaeus, the great emphasis on recapitulation, on the anakephalio. And I don't think enough work has been done, or maybe it has been done, and I've just not noticed it, on those seminal verses in Ephesians 1, 8 through 10, where Paul speaks about the revelation of the mystery of God's will. And I sometimes wonder if I'm actually missing something or there's some kind of lacuna in my thinking. Because Paul writes about Christ in terms of anakephalio, summing up all things again in Christ. And it's that again, that ana that the early church fathers, from Irenaeus onwards, perhaps even before, I don't know that well, understood that God's purposes are cosmic. Christ was the head of creation. Creation has fallen. But God is going to restore creation under its rightful head, Anna Kephalio, Jesus Christ. He's going to sum it up again. And what we have, therefore, in the in the covenant with Noah is God placarding his purpose, his resolved purpose that the sin that has blighted not just Adam and humanity in Adam, but the whole creation that God is going to recover that and God symbolizes that and seals that because every covenant has sealing sacramental signs, don't they? In the rainbow which ultimately then surrounds the throne. And we need to see it and understand it in that cosmic panorama that the everything and the everyone um, underlines in Genesis chapter 9. So when Noah confronts us in the pages of Holy Scripture, it's not as a mere individual. He's a covenant head, his faith and obedience bringing blessing from God to his family. And this covenantal or familial character of faith is embedded in God's successive covenantal administrations with his people. It has never been rescinded or revoked for the simple reason that God doesn't change. Now the writer to the Hebrews, so look with me at Hebrews 11. We will at some point get to Noah's faith. But Hebrews 11, the writer to the Hebrews describes his letter in 1322 as to logotes paraklesios. Um, 
a word of exhortation, um, a word of encouragement. It's a difficult word to, to translate or to explicate. Hebrews is a paracletic epistle. He's writing to Hebrew Christians who are being tempted to turn back from Jesus Christ. They're suffering for their faith in Jesus as God's promised Messiah, Saviour. Life is hard. And in the kind providence of God, this letter was written to encourage them in the face of unspeakable hardships and potential hardships to go on. Now, as you all know, I'm sure, there are two strands to this tulogutes paraclesios. First of all, the writer punctuates his letter with a series of warnings. Consider what awaits you if you turn back from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But more significantly, by far, the writer lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ and shows his tempted, spiritually debilitated readers how preeminently transcendent Jesus is over everyone and everything that has gone before him. He's saying to them, how can you think of turning back from such a saviour, whom God has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, and who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, having actually made purification for sins. How could you ever think of turning back from him? It is this context of temptation and spiritual debility that lies behind Hebrews 11. And so Hebrews 11 is not, I think, what Philip Hughes says it is, a sublime and lyrical encomium of faith. Dislocated from its context, it is a sublime and lyrical encomium of faith. But in its context, it's a challenge, it's an exhortation, it's a rebuke. It's a little like 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, how astonishing that people talk about this beautiful hymn to love. It's a searing spiritual sledgehammer that's smashing the pride and the arrogance of certain people in Corinth. And here is a wonderful illustration of pastoralia, where the writer in the context takes the doctrine of the gospel and applies it in a very particular way to spiritually debilitated believers. John Calvin's comment on Abraham's faith wonderfully describes the faith of all the men and women celebrated in Hebrews chapter 11. I must have read these words of Calvin, um, well, conservatively, hundreds of times. I just think they're stellar. And they encapsulate not just Noah, but all the, the luminaries who are brought before us in this 11th chapter. Calvin writes, Let us also remember that we are all in the same condition as Abraham. Our circumstances are all in opposition to the promises of God. He promises us immortality, yet we are surrounded by mortality and corruption. 
He declares that he accounts us just, yet we are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and benevolent towards us, yet outward signs threaten his wrath. What then are we to do? And Calvin writes, we must close our eyes, disregard ourselves and all things connected with us, so that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. That's not burying your head in theological sand. That's burying your head in the character of the living God. What then are we to do? What was Noah to do? He was to close his eyes, disregard himself and all things connected with him, so that nothing may hinder or prevent him from believing that God is true. Now Noah, as we heard yesterday, is a landmark figure in the history of redemption. He is somewhat of a second Adam. Almost all humanity flows from him. In his story recorded in Genesis 5 through 9, he's described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, a man who walked with God, 6, 9. Ezekiel describes him as righteous. Ezekiel 14, 14. In the New Testament, he's described, Second Peter, as a herald of righteousness, a man who boldly challenged the unrighteousness of his generation, summoning the people to repent and put their faith in the living God or be consumed by divine judgment. In 1 Peter 3, the years during which the ark was being prepared are seen as a time of God's great patience and as an opportunity for repentance. Noah lived in days that are graphically described in Genesis. Days when the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Days when every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Days when the earth was filled with violence. Days when God finally said, enough is enough. And of course it's little wonder, is it, that our Lord Jesus Christ saw the days of Noah as typifying the days that would immediately precede the coming of the Son of Man. Now we first come across Noah in Genesis 5:29. He's given the name Noah, which probably means rest, possibly even comfort. Perhaps he is the one who is to give us rest. And of course, there is an incipiently messianic note embedded in Noah's name. His name means rest. He, is he going to be the one who will bring us rest in the midst of the turbulence of a fallen world? And the language of 521 in Genesis, within the flow of redemptive history, is emblematic of and anticipatory of, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says in stunning egocentricity, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The rest and comfort that was lost by Adam's fall were recovered in the last Adam's rise. Noah is manifestly a type of the saving prototype, the comfort and rest-giving Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
So we first come across Noah in 5.29. And perhaps the two most significant things we're told about Noah are number one in Genesis 6.8. The translation is Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but the theology is grace found Noah. And the second thing is, as I said earlier in Genesis 6.18 and in 7.1, that Noah stands as the covenant head of his family. So what does the writer to the Hebrews then want us to learn from the example of Noah? The entire account of Noah and his preservation and that of his family is the first of many demonstrations in Holy Scripture of the lengths to which God will go to remain faithful to his covenant promises. The Exodus will be another such demonstration. And of course, the cross of our Saviour Jesus Christ will be the greatest of them all. God promised salvation through a human deliverer and he kept his word, kept the line of the promised seed alive in the world until the time for his appearing had fully come. But here at the flood for the first time we have God preserving the seed of the woman and so his promise of that promised offspring who would bring deliverance to mankind. And in particular, I think, and this begins to focus in now on the particular character of Noah's faith. In particular, we have in the account of Noah, what we have in the account of Noah is the first great illustration of the alienation from the world of those who side with God. Here we see perhaps for the first time in the Bible, what it is going to cost a man or a woman who follows the Lord in this world, in troubles, in rejection of his or her peers, in personal isolation, in the reproach and scorn of others. So with that kind of background and introduction, let me look now more carefully at Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith... Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Noah believed God and built an ark. Just let me hopefully not digress, but pause for a moment uh, to say a word about the choice of the word ark. Noah constructed or prepared an ark. Um, the term the writer uses, scatterstuazo, uh, is also used in uh, chapter 9, verses 2 and 6 regarding the construction of the tabernacle. And kiboton is used to refer both to the Ark of the Covenant, Exodus 25 in the LXX, and in Hebrews 9.4. And the Ark of Noah in Genesis 6.14 in the LXX, and in Hebrews 11.7, 1 Peter 3.20. And of course the word kiboton simply means a box or a coffer. Now that's an odd way to describe an enormous ship. And most likely, 
it surely indicates the, the long-standing Jewish association of the Ark of Noah with the covenantal promises of God which the Ark of the Covenant symbolised. And so by faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark. Why did Noah construct an ark? Because God commanded him to do so and thereby save himself and his family. And that's what Noah did. God commanded it. Noah did it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In Noah we see that faith is believing God, trusting his word, acting in obedience to his command. Faith is self-abandoning reliance on God and doing what he says. God himself was the object of Noah's faith. By faith, Noah being warned by God. Now, what would Noah know of God? Well, I'm sure there's much that could be said. But the one thing that I'm persuaded that Noah would surely have known is that the righteous God had made a promise that the last word would not lie with sin and the serpent, but with him and his grace and the promise of a rescuer, a deliverer, a hope-filled promise that centred on the seed of the woman who would crush or bruise the serpent's head. Saving faith throughout the history of redemption was never vague or indistinct. It was always the true human response to God's revelation of himself in judgment as well as in grace. Faith always has that double-edged reality to it. The human response to God's revelation of himself in judgment and in grace. Noah believed God. So when God commanded Noah to build an ark, what did Noah have to go on? Well, he had one thing to go on the veracity of the character of God. But it wasn't as straightforward as that, was it? In the first place, Noah was warned about things not yet seen. God said there would be a deluge that would flood the earth. But what did Noah know of deluge? And it wasn't going to happen for many, many years. There was no actual sign of a deluge. He'd never witnessed a deluge of any fashion. Some even suggest there'd never been any rain up till this point. Not so sure about that. And probably in the second place, Noah, it would seem, lived inland, nowhere near the sea. But Noah builds an ark. Now, why did he build that ark? Well, the writer tells us Noah in reverent fear constructed an ark Noah's faith in God was not a mere intellectual assent to his existence of course nor even to his absolute lordship 
He built his ark in reverent fear. He reverenced God. He honoured him as God. Noah's faith belonged to his worship of God. John Owen comments here, and he doesn't actually spend many pages out of the seven volumes in Hebrews on Noah. There's five, I think, but they're very rich. He comments at this point, Then is fear a fruit of faith when it engageth us unto diligence in our duty. Isn't that great? Then is fear a fruit of faith when it engageth us unto diligence in our duty. I like the way the Puritans are unembarrassed to speak about duty. Where obedient reverence for God is absent, saving faith cannot be present. Noah's faith belonged to his worship of God. He obeyed God because he had come to know God not as a theological construct, but as the living God, his sovereign and his saviour. He lived in reverent fear of God. And that's the note that it seems to me is by and large missing from modern evangelical and increasingly from reformed Christianity. I read these words of David Wells perhaps 17 years ago for the first time sitting in the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in Edinburgh. Someone said to me, it was Eric Alexander actually said to me, I was reading this in David Wells. I, I typed it out. We typed things out in those days. Um, Eric still types them out. I think he can just about find the on-off button in his computer. David Wells writes, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is... Now, how would you complete that sentence? Probably some of you know this quote. It's relatively well known, I think. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique insufficient organisation or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to stanch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church His truth is too distant, his grace is too ordinary, his judgment is too benign, his gospel is too easy, his Christ is too common. Now he's not advocating, is he, antiquarianism. That would be folly. He's not saying we're to yearn for the past, that's stupidity. But if we don't understand why the evangelical church is so pathetically weak and I include myself and my congregation in that. Then we've lost the plot in reverent fear. Noah built his ark. Faith is believing God, whatever our circumstances may say. And that's why those words of Calvin, which are actually his exposition of Romans 4.20 on Abraham, are so significant when our circumstances are all against us. God says he accounts us just outward signs threaten his wrath. We're covered with sins. 
He promises us immortality. We're surrounded by mortality and corruption. What then are we to do? We're to close our eyes, disregard ourselves, that nothing may hinder us, hinder from believing that God is true. Faith is acting upon God's word, however foolish it may appear to the world around us. One of the great sadnesses is seeing younger pastors, I think, losing confidence, losing confidence and opting for short-termism in building the church. I'm no antiquarian at all. When a, a student from another church visited us not so long back and as, as she was leaving, I was chatting with her and she said, you sang a Stuart Town anthem. I said, uh-huh. She said, you've got a cello and a violin. I said, uh-huh. Are you not a trustee at the Banner of Truth? <laughs> Is this Cambridge Presbyterian Church? The danger is that we opt for the short term. We, we're not in it for the long haul. I live in Cambridge and I never tire of walking through Kings. And every time I do, I turn to the right or to the left to admire the chapel. It took 120 years to build. But it's still here. It's still here. Reverent fear. But the danger is, of course, that we culturalise reverent fear. We think it means gloominess, heaviness, dullness, darkness. It may at times mean that. Would to God we had more heaviness of heart in our churches. When God draws near and our mouths are shut as we discover afresh the sinfulness of sin, that reverent fear can be expressed in delight, in joy, in open-hearted worship and adoration and thanksgiving. Enough of that. Secondly, by faith, Noah condemned the world. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, by what? By this he condemned the world. Now there's continuing debate over the clause through which or by which he condemned the world, specifically the issue of the antecedent of D. Hayes through which. Now it could be taken with soterian, couldn't it, salvation, or the antecedent could go as far back as pistis, faith. But John Owen rightly finds that kind of nuancing senseless, I think is the word he uses. He says, I shall not contend, or, um, contend about this, the debate regarding the proper antecedent. The meaning is, by the which faith, acting and evidencing itself in the building of an ark, these things were wrought. The faithfulness of Noah condemned the faithlessness of the world around him. As Samuel Byrd, a very early Puritan, 1598, put it, Noah's obedience made their stubbornness the better seen. The day came when the mocking laughter was silenced forever. The day finally arrived when the deluge covered the earth. 
It's good to have some imagination, isn't it? As the years pass, people looking at Noah, what are you doing, Noah? I'm building a boat. And what are you building a boat for, Noah? Well, God has said. And the years would pass, and the years would pass, and Noah's still building his boat. And nothing seems to be happening. Still waiting for your flood, Noah. For possibly 120 years, Noah preached righteousness. The need of righteousness, no doubt, and the nature of righteousness, but only his family listened. And the day came when unbelief was condemned, when God in judgment deluged and drowned the world. Now this is awesome, isn't it? I'm ashamed more than I can tell you how little the awesomeness of that actually affects me. I can read it and even preach it and not be humbled to the dust in the face of it. A world deluge. Thousands upon thousands. Wiped out. The world condemned by Noah's faithfulness and righteousness. And Noah turned out to be the only sane man on the planet because it's the essence of sanity to take your creator seriously. It is sin's insanity. It's the ultimate absurdity to live as if God and his word didn't matter. And we condemn the world when we live by faith in God and when we speak the double-edged covenant message of grace and judgment, of blessing and of curse, but it's always double-edged. He condemned the world. Time's hurrying on. Number three, by faith he became an heir of righteousness. Now what does this mean? Well, the heir is the one who becomes the possessor. By grace alone, through faith alone, Noah became an inheritor of righteousness. But look what we're told in chapter 1, verse 2 of Hebrews. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Noah and every other heir of righteousness is so only by virtue of having been made one with Christ, the sole heir. Because faith takes us into Christ who is the heir of all things. And if he is the heir of all things, we can only inherit anything by being united with him. So all things are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. If Christ is the heir of all things, if these Hebrew Christians turned back from him, they turn back from being heirs of righteousness. So the story of Noah demonstrates the simultaneity of judgment and salvation. My wife told me simultaneity wasn't a word. but So if you'll prefer the synchronousness <laughs> of judgment and salvation. We just read different kind of books. That's just the problem. I was actually lecturing last Friday to a theological college in the States by go-to-meeting Skype. And um, 
I'm halfway through this first hour on reformed spirituality. And I uh, said, so do you have any questions so far? And one student up his hand, mature student, and said, what does idiosyncratic mean? My first thought was, go and get a life, son. Go and get a life. But I very generously told him. Um, the simultaneity of judgment and salvation which of course are the twin realities of covenant relationship. The same water which overwhelmed the scornful and unbelieving also supported the ark. The eight in the ark were saved through water, as Peter tells us. And that double dynamic runs through like a, a golden thread, God's covenantal administrations. You see it in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace to the believer, but a means of condemnation to those who eat and drink in an unworthy manner. The Lord's Supper is a signing seal. I prefer that to sign and seal. There are people who think, well, the Lord's Supper is a, is a sign only to unbelievers, but a seal to believers. No, it's a sign and a seal to unbelievers as well as believers. To believers, it's a signing seal of grace and union and communion with Christ. To unbelievers, it's a sign and seal of condemnation and judgment. This double dynamic of judgment and condemnation we see at the very heart of Noah's faith. What do we see then in the life of Noah as it's briefly explicated to us here in verse 7 of chapter 11? We see that God is a God of judgment, righteous judgment, that he will and must punish sin or un-God himself. But most wonderfully, he is a God who has provided a way of escape from his judgment. And Jesus Christ is God's way of escape. He is the ark of our salvation. Jesus Christ is himself the salvation of God. He doesn't give salvation that's pretty Roman. He gives himself. He is the salvation of God. Grace isn't a kind of um, substance that God imparts to us. Again, that's very Roman. In the gospel, God gives us himself. I am the way. Come to me and I will give you rest. But in terms of preaching as pastors, People will never want a way of escape until, like Noah, we become true heralds of righteousness and present the double dynamic of that righteousness. Until people know they need a way of escape. They'll never want a way of escape, but the moment they discover their need of a way of escape, the gospel of Jesus Christ will just be glorious in their eyes and ears. So here are these spiritually debilitated Christians. And they're under great pressure to give up and to go back. And the writer says, consider Noah. Look at what his faith brought him. In the midst of a world consumed with wickedness, he believed God. 
And over many years he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. Consider Noah. Look what his faith brought him. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us looking away to Jesus. May God help us to have such faith and to stand in such a world as men who believe God. Amen.